This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health, addictions, and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. And guest opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. And with that, today's guest is our very own Lisa Kalko, who's here to talk with us about relapse prevention, and in particular, creating a relapse prevention plan. So let's welcome Lisa. Welcome back, Lisa. I love it when we talk about addiction recovery. We actually have a whole playlist on YouTube now dedicated to this topic, but today we're going to talk about relapse prevention. And I thought maybe we could start by talking about some of those common triggers uh, that people seem to have around relapse. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we always like to acknowledge is that relapse can be a part of recovery. And Sadly, you know, triggers are a big component to that. If we don't plan for relapse, which nobody really wants to acknowledge planning for relapse. Remember, I was working in one recovery center at one point. We were talking about relapse prevention planning. And I had acknowledged the statistic that about 90% of folks relapse in the first year, which has been an, a really, you know, powerful statistics for a long period of time. And I kid you not, Joanne, I seriously thought that I was going to be found out in the back with like tied up and, you know, everybody was so angry with me. And it was really that, that fear, uh, you know, that acknowledgement that they all really wanted to be well, they didn't want to relapse. And sometimes in that fear of acknowledging it could happen, we just want to avoid that it could happen, and it's not going to happen to us. So part of what we want to do is really just normalize the fact that relapse can happen, not for everyone, but it is more common than we realize. And looking at the contributors to those relapse pieces really helps us to prepare a relapse plan that maybe, you know, help to avoid some of those triggers or help to, you know, not even avoid triggers, helps to be sustainable. I always joke, you know, that my job is not there to avoid triggers. My job is there to help folks navigate triggers because triggers are going to happen no matter where we are. But some of the high kind of high points around triggers are high risk situations. So, some of the things that we can note that could contribute to relapse, one of them being, you know, feeling down. So that's a big one we hear all the time. You know, in early recovery, our mood is all over the place. We're going through that post-acute withdrawal cycle or that pause cycle. And I know that you did a, a great infographic on that. And, you know, and I always like to acknowledge that there's a reason we celebrate it in early recovery spaces, such as 12-step programs, because that first 24 hours, that first seven days, that first 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months, one year, 18 months, you know, and even every seven years, like we go through that pink cloud. We're like, oh my gosh, things are great. I'm doing so good. And then that low that happens following that is really quite devastating. And it really takes a lot of people by surprise. Why am I feeling down? I was just doing so good. I was on top of the world. And that feeling down can really be a big contributor to folks having a relapse or wanting to kind of their brain wanting to encourage them to that self-medicating or that coping strategy they'd used before. And so this is where we kind of, we would adopt the HALT strategy because I know our listeners love having tips, tools, things to prepare them. And HALT is a great one. It's checking in with yourself somatically and just your sensations around you and asking, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Now, we know there's a whole range of other emotions, such as feeling sad or scared, bored or stressed, even maybe guilty about something. But it's a really good, simple one of like, halt, take a moment. Do, you know, do any of these apply? Is there something I can do in the short term that may help me overcome those specific parts? 
Another one is going to be social pressure, you know, and that's a really, that's the second most common contributor to, you know, relapse is when we're out, we see other people around us, you know, and I would oftentimes get that with folks who are like, I can't go to a restaurant and not order a drink. And I was like, well, what's your definition of a drink? Are we looking at a fluid of which we can consume or are we looking at an alcoholic beverage? You know, so it's about reframing that and just saying like everybody goes out and often people will have a drink and that drink doesn't need to be alcoholic. It can be, you know, something that is just a coffee. It can be, you know, I love my kids laugh at me. I love Shirley Temples and I love making Shirley Temples and I love having mocktails and various varieties of them, you know, and just something that we can have that's super special to us. that still gives us that feeling of participating without succumbing to the social pressure. And the third, you know, most common one that we'll oftentimes hear from folks is getting in a disagreement or having a fight where those big emotions come up. We're not sure how to handle them, or maybe we have learned how to handle them, but we're still struggling in our ways, trying to renegotiate roles or relationships or boundaries with our trusted people. And, you know, we're just, we're trying to to figure out what do we do when we have these big feelings because we're no longer, say, in a treatment space, or maybe our therapist isn't always available, or maybe our um, our trusted, you know, friends or other folks are just not there to hold space for us. So it can feel really challenging when we have those big feelings come up and we don't know how to process them, which is where we look at safety planning. If we plan for that off-ramp, if we plan for that safety strategy of, hey, if I'm feeling really struggling or if I feel like I'm really struggling, I'm going to call this friend. I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to reach out to my trusted person. I'm going to go and just take a walk. I'm going to do something so that we actually have that safety plan already in place to help prevent relapse before our brain goes to the thing it knows best, which is, hmm, maybe I'll go use, maybe I'll go do, maybe I'll use this thing. So planning for relapse is not a bad thing. It's actually a really healthy and protective thing because now we've given our brain more neural pathways it can access in those states of fright. That brings me to my next question because my husband and I have a relapse plan together. We know what the signs look like for each other because this isn't my first time through recovery. I had a number of years, resentments got in there. I stopped doing what I was supposed to be doing, had those big feelings. And next thing you know, I was off and running again. But Mm -hmm. that was my next question is, what does it look like? Because we say quite often in the recovery world that, that the relapse started far beyond or far before we picked up that first drink or drug. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's not just looking at, you know, I I really want to acknowledge it's not like we're just looking at relapse from substances or drinks or drug, you know, it's looking at relapse into any old coping behavior. And you're right. You know, oftentimes those warning signs are on the wall. Like even when we look at folks who struggle with sexual compulsive behaviors or shopping addictions or other video game addictions, or even other sort of depressive states, we start to have that writing on the wall where we're feeling a bit low, we're starting to disengage, we're not, you know, really honoring the treatment plan or the things that we were doing in our strong and healthy states. Maybe we've stopped running, maybe we've stopped going to the gym, maybe we've stopped eating well, maybe we've stopped taking care of ourselves. And that's where it's just about inviting the people who are closest to us in that recovery plan. And I love how you and your husband have that together because that's part of what we try and do even in our work is saying who are your trusted people? Do we trust them enough to share in this vulnerable piece of what does our plan look like? It's not that we want to scare them that relapse is is going to happen because it may never happen. Best case scenario, it never happens. 
that's that trust of saying, but if it, if it is going in that direction, if I am starting to slide, I trust you enough to call me on my shit. I trust you enough to hold me back and to, to have that difficult conversation with me. I trust you enough to know that you've got my back. That act of trusting is so powerful and so profound. And it just helps us to really empower the other person to say, and please do that because the cost of a relapse is far worse than the cost of a difficult conversation. And yes, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to have it. We don't like it, but they will know those warning signs. They'll be able to call us out on that. They'll be able to hold us in that space. And yeah, I might have some big feelings around it. Like, look, Daniel's had to call me on my shit numerous times. And the last thing I want is to be like, Lisa, do you realize you're stress shopping or you're stress eating? Or you're, I'm like, no, I did not. But now I do. And I don't like it. And of course, that response is like, you know, that those big feelings trying to protect me and be my bodyguard. But then I can check myself before I wreck myself and really have that space of saying, hey, you might have just prevented that relapse before it happened. And I can look back at that. I can take my pause. Pause is another great technique that we have. That sober second thought, that place of just slowing it down and that mindfulness way and saying, hey, what am I feeling in this moment? Give myself the benefit, the the graciousness of time, and then re-engaging and saying, you know what? I kind of feel like I was a bit a bit sour in that moment. Or one of our great words is, I was a bit spicy. I really feel it a bit spicy. And I don't really want to be that spicy with you. And I'm sorry. And, you know, that's the benefit of time. And, you know, just that trusted support and vulnerability. So that's a great, great strategy of being able to hold space with our loved ones and inviting them into our plan. It's good because that's uh, our viewers and our listeners on the podcast love strategy. So we've got halt, we've got pause. We've got building a plan. Do you have a template of a plan that we can hook into the description? So I don't have a template of a plan that we can, I mean, there's so many plans like, yes, I mean, let me rephrase that. Yes, there are so many things that we can kind of get from PsychWire or, you know, even therapist aid tools and things like that. If you Google it, there's so many different versions. One of the things that we do with our clinicians when we're working through a really structured relapse prevention plan is we do kind of go through a very guided therapeutic space of exploring who are your trusted people? What does that safe and stable support look like? Um, You know, what is that safety, you know, within that, that plan look like? And we look at variables like, do you have safe and stable housing? Do you have access to, you know, support for your financial safety? Do you have support within your your community or your clan or the people who are in your support network? Um, you know, do you have goals that we can help you work towards? Because we know that there's going to be those really shitty times and it will be hard when we can remain focused on going through those hard things because we can see they're in alignment with our goals and our values. And we know that that hard work is worth it. Then we're going to be more committed to seeing it through, even when we're past that post-acute withdrawal phase. And we're like, oh my gosh, it really sucks. And this is why I'm doing it. I just have to keep going one foot in front of the other because this recovery matters. And for anyone who's watching or listening, as you know, Lisa, I went through um, my oldest daughter being killed and not just killed, murdered with along with a couple other people. And I stayed sober. I stayed sober through that process. It is possible, but I had I had my plan. I had my people. I had I I had an entire tribe around me, and and that's one of the reasons is um, plus plus I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. So I was, you know, we talk about that bucket, right? And we've got to keep mm-hmm. that bucket full. My bucket was full when that happened. Um, so for anyone that's listening, it is possible to stay yeah. sober, you know, through 
through the worst. And I, I really want to share, Joanne, as you were, you know, kind of, I mean, I know that we've known and we've, we've talked about that beautiful share so many times, but even as you were just saying that now I got goose pimples, it really is so touching and so affirming to know that, you know, you had the opportunity to take this horrendous thing that happened and use your recovery plan and also be able to bring this gift forward of your daughter's life into the work you do right now as this, you know, absolutely heartfelt place offering this healing to so many other people, not only in your share, but in the work that you do every day with us in your own work, in Nicole's work. I just think that that is a beautiful, heartfelt acknowledgement of we can go through hard things, we can experience hard things. And when we make meaning out of them, when we can really, you know, honor that, that it, it can have, you know, an opportunity to be purposeful in our lives and others, it creates that space of allowing us to, to be in that vulnerability and to bring it forward. And I just, I think that's such an amazing share and such an amazing gift that you bring to us. Yeah, that, that is recovery is taking those things and, and turning them into something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, any other strategies that you want to share before we shift focus on family members? I mean, I think, you know, some of the biggest things is really just starting to be aware of your own triggers, which again, like I said, so many of them can really be like, that's the early warning signs part of what are my triggers? What are the things that are going to usually result in my hotbed moments? Writing them out, you know, being aware of them. And, And as I said, it's not just about looking at substances, but you know, what are your triggers for you know, your mental illness? I see this often with folks who struggle with, say, PTSD. Um, you know, we'll have all of these adaptive strategies to be like, I have to avoid all crowds. Well, we're going to create another mental illness or another concern if we're avoiding all things. Are there things that we can safely put into place that are going to help you? And sometimes writing them out is a great tip, you know, and, and I often will get folks to be like, I don't need to write my shit out. I know all of it. It's like, Yes, you probably do. And you know it better than me. But writing it out and sharing it with somebody else actually holds us to an intentional commitment. Being aware of when we're in our strong and healthy space, what are the things that we're doing that really keep us grounded? They keep us feeling connected to our trusted supports so we can handle that when it is in a time of distress. You know, your mind is going to be offline. When you flipped your lid and you're in emotional space, you're not going to be like, who is the person I was going to call when I'm struggling? No. But that's where, you know, having your your trusted people, having that number to be like, hey, why don't you call John or why don't you call Susie or why don't you call person X and reach out to them. And also just reminding yourself like, hey, wait a minute, I can do this. I've done this in the past. I've done this difficult work. So writing it out is a really big one that we kind of look at to help us overcome that. And what about friends and family? What can they do to help support relapse prevention in their loved ones? This is where I think, you know, sometimes families get so scared, they don't want to be the trigger. And I'll tell my families, you know, triggers are big feelings. We cannot avoid them. It's kind of like saying, just avoid all people, places, and things. (laughs) You know, there are always going to be people, places, and things. And it's not about avoiding all of the people, places, and things. It's about doing those inventories. It's about figuring out who are my people and places and things that both trigger me and support me. And, you know, being able to hold those difficult conversations, being able to lean into that with our loved ones, and we will actually work with our families to say, what is your response plan? Very similarly, 
as our loved ones, you know, are going through their own challenges and we, you know, we want to think that like, oh, they're going to get this. They've got this. That's a lot of pressure for them to have from their family system. And similarly, you know, for the families to think like, I need to know what I'm going to do the next time. If they do this, I'm going to put this boundary on them. And again, we always go back to the boundaries aren't things you can put on other people. They're our own affirming yeses and nos that we put for ourselves. So in that space of saying, okay, so what are my boundaries? What are the things I need to enact to take care of me if my loved one is struggling again? What is my response if they are relapsing or if they slip? Because a relapse doesn't necessarily need to be a full-blown return to adaptive behavior or maladaptive behavior. It can start as a slip and it can evolve into a relapse. And I know there's a lot of like divisiveness in, in recovery communities where like, no, it was a relapse. There's always, there's no, you know, I'd like to think of it in a little bit more of a progressive continuum of sometimes people slip and fall and they can get back up and continue moving forward in their journeys. Sometimes people relapse I look at it less of like a regression and more of like a, I've just hunkered down in a point right now where I'm at today. And maybe I'm having a bit of an adult tantrum where I just don't feel I can get back up and keep going. But that's kind of more of a relapse where we've, we've just, we've exhausted ourselves and we're stuck in a new place, even if it's with old behaviors. In that regard, you know, it's, it's about looking at myself as a family member, as a person saying, what do I need to take care of me to put on my own oxygen mask first? So that when my loved one is ready, we can carry on this journey because they're going to probably need me to help them through those initial steps as we keep going. They may need me to carry them a little bit. They may need me to support them differently. And I need to have the strength to do that. And it's about really honoring, do you want to be alongside? Do you need to take a step back? Where do you need to be? And what is your response to when somebody relapses or when somebody slips? And, you know, I was working with one family and I remember the, the, one of the, the individuals that said, you know, the crime needs to fit the time. And, and that's very fair in terms of looking at their response plan and saying, what, what do I feel I can effectively support and not support? And it may be different for a slip. It may be different for a relapse. You know, it's, it's about what do we need? And so really holding that intentional space and doing it when you're sober, you're strong, you're healthy, you're resourced, you're feeling like you've got the bandwidth to look at that. And you can respond in a heartfelt way as opposed to a reactionary way. Because then it feels like it's attacking. It feels like it's punishment. It feels very punitive. And that's what we don't want it to come across as we don't want our person to feel already hurt and then be further experiencing what they perceive to be punitive, even though they may have a response to it. I know ours has changed over time. The longer we've been together and the more sobriety we built together, it's different. It, you know, in the beginning, it was this is going to happen and this and this, but now it's changed where, okay, well, you know, we'll give it a little bit of time and then there, there has to be treatment. And it's not like, no, you're out. <laughs> the house, yeah. Get out. yeah it's, it's changed. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that really reflects that, you know, the crime fitting the time in that, or the, you know, or vice versa. Um, but that, I think it really reflects that space of my response is going to look different as we've got trust built up over time. My response is going to look different as I know that you and I have done that work together and, or maybe I have been a little too permissive in, you know, what may have been leading up to it, or maybe I've been too hard in what led up to it. It's not about foregoing my contribution or my, my role. It's really about having those ongoing dialogues and recognizing that trust is built and titrated over time. And so I'm sure even with you and your partner, as you've had that time together, you've built trust in different way, 
but you also know each other's triggers in different ways. And so, you know, we can take different levels of accountability and responsibility for not only ourselves, but our contribution with our loved ones and, and moderating that into our response plan. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Was there anything that you wanted to add in, in closing? You know, I always love when you ask me that and I'm like, no, I think I'm good. And then I'm like, yes, I want to add this and that and all of these things. I mean, I really think the biggest thing is just starting to really sit with, you know, what our needs are for ourselves. Not everyone is going to sit down and write a, a full relapse prevention plan. And, you know, some people may want to ostrich and avoid it completely. Some folks are like, no, I want to have a really thorough, robust relapse plan. And, and it may still be paperweight when the time comes. It's just about simply acknowledging that we're going to be exposed to stressors. We're going to be exposed to triggers. Relapse is a common thing that so many folks struggle with. And it's not about judging it. I'm not saying in a way that I'm expecting it. I'm saying in a way that I really want folks to be prepared for it and know that it's not it's not something that, you know, makes them bad or it doesn't mean that they don't want their recovery. It's something that, you know, we really want to just be able to support in a way that says, okay, what we were doing wasn't working. How do we support change? And, you know, that last piece I'll leave that with. And when I'm working with so many folks, as I always tell them, a lot of them are very apologetic. They have so much guilt and shame about what they may have done in their, you know, maladaptive coping. And I will oftentimes say, you know, and this is not my line, I don't know where it came from, but I use it frequently in that at best, the best apology is change behavior. The more we can take these daily steps of building trust and vulnerability and changing our behavior, the more that we're going to actually create that the distance in needing to use a relapse plan. And so just taking that day by day, step by step, you know, in recovery circles, that one day at a time. It's very mindfulness-based, you know, because it's really just that space of that's exactly all it is. It's one day at a time showing up and continuing to really do the best work we can. Well, again, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you.